0: What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Celtics Collective Podcast, brought to you by Heavy on Celtics and Heavy on Sports. We're here to keep your finger on the pulse of all things Celtics basketball. You're going to be joined by Sean Devaney, our resident NBA insider, giving you the inside workings of an NBA front office, giving you some trade rumors that you may not see, or you may see after you hear the episode when ag- aggregation occurs. Maddy Kroll our hostess who likes to throw shade at everybody and anybody for no apparent reason and then you've got me Adam Taylor who's the X's and O's guy and generally I'm just not pleased with anything I see so make sure you tune in
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Celtics Collective podcast. If you don't recognize me, I'm filling in for Adam and Maddie. Both are on vacations, both in different places. Adam is on a beach somewhere. He did offer to join to join us, but did uh, say that his words might be slurred, so we we left him out of the podcast today. But but I'm here with Sean. Denny. I was I
2: was outvoted on that, Tom. I really wanted to have him
1: uh, on uh, with the slurred speech, but maybe maybe, uh, uh, maybe
2: best that he's not.
1: I I think he's already funny without it I can only imagine where the podcast would go and some of the some of the like different opinions and things that we'd get if if he was on a beach somewhere slurring his words but giving his uh hot takes out um but yeah so I wanted I'm basically here just to introduce kind of the interview that you guys did with with Scott Pollard I grew up in Utah Scott Pollard mentions uh he's probably related to 63% of people that are, that are from Utah. So I've been familiar with him from some time, but he's an 11 year, he played 11 years in the NBA um, won a championship with the Boston Celtics, but is known most probably for his time with the Kings and Pacers. But I wanted to ask you, Sean, what some of your favorite things from the interview with Scott were.
2: Yeah, it was, it was great just to talk to him because when I first started out as a, as a young reporter uh, in the early two thousands, you know, his, his Sacramento Kings were, they were the thing, man. They were the new thing. They were obviously the Lakers were the dominant team, but the Kings were, were playing the style of basketball. It's, it was just great to be able to talk to him a little bit about that. You know, I mentioned that uh, that his team does not get enough credit for the, the evolution of the game. Uh, I wasn't surprised to find that uh, that he, uh, uh, he agreed with me on that. Uh, but yeah, there were some really cool things we talked about. Kansas, uh, in time at Kansas, uh, playing with Paul Pierce, who uh, surprisingly he had the nickname Bambi uh, when he <laughs> first got to. I'm not sure that's something Paul Pierce uh, wants to be uh, uh, well-known out there, but but that was kind of funny, kind of a, a, a cool story. Of course, uh, we also brought up this rumor that he had this fight with Kevin Garnett uh, in Japan, uh, and uh, and he went into some detail about that. And, uh, one of the things that he said that I thought was great was, uh, you know, at some point you're going to play with guys that you hate. Uh, And and he said he hated Garnett before he joined that 2007 Celtics team. Uh, He mentioned Reggie Miller was another one uh, that he had played with too. So I thought that was a pretty cool moment as well. So and we also talked about some you know some of today's issues you know with Kevin Garnett, uh, sorry Kevin Durant uh, obviously, and 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 what's going on with the Nets and and he had some pretty good thoughts on that as well.
1: Yeah, he told. I mean. I was blown away by just the amount of storytelling and me as a producer my job is to kind of cut the clips and find the interesting the most interesting things we talked about and I found myself finding like 20 to 25 talking points that we could go off in the episode and I think you're right that Paul Pierce may not want his Bambi nickname to to live (laughs) on I think the truth is a lot cooler than um, Bambi but yeah he told some really good stories and 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 it's funny how he talked about how he hated Mike Bibby from, from college. And I really enjoyed your question from how it felt. He chose Kansas over UCLA and um, Arizona. And, and Arizona, both of those teams right. went, he went on to lose ultimate. Well, one, he lost to Arizona, but both teams went on to win the um, NCAA national championship. and And he talked about hating Mike Bibby and all these players he ends up playing with later in his career. And he was very candid about his feelings and stories there. And so I'm excited for, for all of you to listen to this episode that we did with Scott Pollard and um, encourage you all to, to follow rate review everywhere you can, the Celtics collective podcast, Um, Sean, Maddie, and Adam all do a great job and are bringing you some great Celtics content. And so as a producer, please do all that. Um, Share it with your friends, share it with other Celtics fans. And uh, we appreciate you being with us.
3: What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Celtics Collective podcast. We are super excited today because we have our first guest, Scott Pollard, who I don't think needs an introduction, but um, we're going to get all the history and uh, have some fun on this podcast.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Scott's bringing the energy. Everybody
3: else is lacking. I mean, we need to
0: put some respect (laughs) on that NBA champion, Scott Pollard. NBA champion and we need some respect on that name from the get-go
3: I mean he's a champion in life I feel like at this point from reality yeah. tv and on the court
4: and you should see my wife
3: <laughs> I have seen your wife you you kind of outkicked your coverage there mm-hmm. good for you yeah. yeah
4: it's totally my personality
0: it's the tall man <laughs> privilege right mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it love it great way to start just absolute chaos uh, I'll let Sean go with the first question because I know Sean's uh the the history NBA historian amongst us, so he's gonna have. Oh, like, is right? Well, that right? Oh,
2: well, that just means I'm old, I guess. That's but I'll, I'll be We it. were
3: trying to be nice about yeah, it, yeah. I was being nice yeah,
2: about it. I appreciate it. well, I, I think Scott will appreciate because I, I, I listen to people say, Well, the Warriors have changed the game, uh, you know, with the way that they play. And, you know, some people who maybe are a little older will say, no, no, it was the Phoenix Suns with Mike D'Antoni. But I know and Scott knows that 20 years ago, if you were watching the Sacramento Kings, that what you see from the Warriors now and the way the game is now, it was the Kings that really started that because basketball at that time was unwatchable. But, but the Kings played a completely different style of game. The Mavericks, too, I think, uh, to an extent. Uh, would you agree with that, Scott? Do you think that the Kings don't get enough credit for the way the game is now?
4: Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that statement. The, the, the Kings, two, two statements, that the Kings started that with the big men shooting threes and the ball moving around to every player on the offense. Uh, everybody getting shots, everybody sharing the ball, and everybody being happy if they got a ton of shots or if they don't get a ton of shots as long as we win. Uh, and then, yeah, that we don't get enough credit. I, I agree with that because um, we, we had bigs that shot. We had bigs that passed. We had bigs that were stopping at the three-point line uh, before it was cool. It was coming out of – you know, it was the early 2000s. We're coming out of the 90s where everybody just kicked the shit out of each other all the time. And, and you know, games in the east in the Eastern Conference, my rookie year, I was in Detroit. <laughs> We'd win a game 85 to 80. I mean, it was rough. It was like, oh, we're to yeah, it out. When, we're we're, gonna, the, when you there.
2: left, yeah, you, you went from from, from that. To your next stop right after Sacramento was in the. You guys playing the conference. I was at the game, game six uh, uh, against Detroit. Uh, you guys lost conference finals. Final score 69 65. Yeah. That was actual NBA basketball.
4: Yeah. And, you know, two two years earlier than that, I was with Sacramento in 2001 or two, and we had set, I think, a franchise record and maybe an NBA record at the time because we scored 61 points in the first half against the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, And I know that does, people do that all the time, but it hadn't been done for a long time if it had. And if it wasn't an NBA record, I'm pretty sure it was a Kings franchise record. And so, We brought a lot of fun to the game and and that that fast-paced tempo, a lot of scoring that that more fans like. I mean, yeah, there's purists out there. They're like, oh, man, all they do is jack up threes whatever. And I'm one of those. I I don't really love that every shot's a three. That's not my thing. I don't care, though. Basketball is jazz music. It has always evolved. It will always evolve. And it's always because of the best players, just like in jazz music. So when the best players are doing every single thing you can do with the basketball, everyone else has to get in line and follow their lead. And so it's just going to be that way. Uh, but I loved being on those Sacramento Kings teams. That was my favorite part of my career. I was the longest I was anywhere. Uh, I committed to every team I was on. I wanted to be a Piston for life. And then I got traded to Atlanta. I wanted to be Atlanta Hawk for life. I lasted there for about, I don't know, bed and breakfast. Uh, they got me a couple weeks later. Um, and then I signed with Sacramento. I wanted to be there for the rest. You know, for the rest of my career. And they traded me to Indiana. I was like, hey, I love it here. This is great. I want to be here for the rest of my career. Three years, my, my last three years of that contract were up. Signed with Cleveland. I was like, you know what? This is great. I'm teammates with LeBron. I'll be here for the end of my career, which was that year, because uh, that was my 10th year. Little nugget, when I was a little kid, my goal was to make it to the NBA and play 10 years and then retire. Uh, and that's what I did. After my 10th year was Cleveland, we got to the NBA Finals. I've been to the Western Conference Finals, I've been to the Eastern Conference Finals twice, the NBA Finals. I was like, I was the only year in my entire basketball career dating back to my freshman year of high school, uh, all four years of college, and except for my rookie year, 11 years in the NBA, but my rookie year was the only year I didn't play in the postseason. So I was always on really good teams and I never want to ring. <laughs> so I was like, I'm, it's never going to happen. I'm done, 10 years is my goal. And I get done with Cleveland and, and Boston calls and said, hey, come help us win a championship. I said, no, I'm good. Uh, you know, I'm relatively healthy. Nothing's really broken. I, I had healed from my broken back. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. And then, you know, some other people talked me into it and had a blast. I love Boston. We all know, you guys all know what happened there. Uh, but first day I was there, we were practicing and I rolled my ankle really bad and uh, tried to play through it, couldn't, went to Europe, and then they sent me home from Europe. They went down to London and from Rome, I got sent home uh, because my ankle blew up uh, over there. And, and that was kind of expected because I would at least be with the training staff. But they sent me home to the assistant training staff. And uh, so I got an MRI and they were like, look, you're getting surgery. And I was like, no, nah, what's the recovery? And they're like, four months. I said, no, nah, I'm not getting surgery. What's What are my options? They're like, well, you can try to make it through the year. And I said, all right, I'm going to do that. Because if I get surgery now, I'm not back till February. They're going to replace me. And February comes around, and guess what? It gave out, <laughs> and that's wow. when I had surgery, uh, and there was nothing I could do about that point. It had completely ruptured the, the tendon in my leg, and so uh, I, that's when I got surgery. And so I still didn't actually win a championship, but I got the I got the ring, and I, and I take the credit for that, as a for all the aforementioned teams from dating back to high school that coulda, woulda, shoulda uh, played in the postseason and and had state title aspirations and NCAA title aspirations. And, and NBA title aspirations, and so I wear that ring for all those teams.
3: No, we definitely still consider you a champion. Well, thank you. I'm glad you brought up Boston, though, because I have a fun question for you. I hear that you rolled into Boston with a mullet, but I cannot find a photo online. I have done crazy amounts of digging. Is this true? Can you confirm?
4: Uh, not on purpose. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think what what's possible is my hair was getting a little longer and i was just kind of ben franklin on top oh so it was just kind of long hair bald guy uh because it was just getting thinner but i did not cut the top it was just i had the little v and it's worse now than it was then but like it was just kind of thin on top but it wasn't intentional mullet it was just i was ben franklin and it was kind of flowing in the back so i was like a founding father uh with the (laughs) hairstyle there not not really party in the back and business up front it was more like put me on a dollar bill or something like that
3: (laughs) that's why you rolled your ankle right so you were like i got to distract these people
4: yeah yeah i was like don't look at my hair look at my swollen ankle
3: no that's awesome thank you for sharing that
0: so one of the uh, one of the stories that came out in the 2000, like that championship team, the 08 team, was that the big men used to have these G-unit practices, of big men just going at it, right, just mauling each other left, right and centre. Was you part of any of those before the ankle gave out or is that why your ankle got rolled?
4: <laughs> well, we did the – that must have been later in the season because uh, early in the season I was rehabbing through the preseason and then regular season started and I was good to go. Uh, and, you know, I – I probably didn't participate in those just because I was still trying to nurse that ankle. And they were like, you don't need extra wear and tear. Practice is enough. It's a long season. And and I knew it was my last year. Like uh, my body was like, we're good. You make it through this year, we're good. So uh, I wasn't doing anything extracurricular. So that would have been after practice if the big men were going at it like that. And I wasn't a part of it
2: how about if we go just back a little bit further before the celtics uh you know even before your your Nba career you were a teammate of a pretty pretty prominent celtic and that's Paul Pierce what do you what do you remember about him from from your days at Kansas and and,
4: and when he arrived there because uh, I think he was a pretty young guy when he got there yeah well when he came on his recruiting trip i think he was 15 oh, uh, and when he got to campus he was 16. And he turned 17 shortly after he got to campus his freshman year. So he was really young um, and just headphones, didn't talk much, really shy. Not surprising when you, when you got a bunch of personalities like we had on that Kansas team. And then you're a 17-year-old kid. But uh, it didn't take long for us to see how good that kid was going to be. We called him Bambi because he was still so skinny and he was all elbows and knees. And he'd just go into practice and his elbow would pop somebody on this side and then pop somebody over there. And then he would dunk on somebody and we're like, damn, Bambi, take it easy. Don't injure everybody <laughs> on the way to the basket. Um, but, uh, you know, he did some so many amazing things as a, as a 17, 18-year-old freshman. We were just like, wow, okay, yeah, this, he's going to be a superstar. He, and he was already good. I'm not saying he wasn't great. Uh, but we knew that there was going to be a whole ceiling that was, that was for the rest of us, unmatchable, uh, unattainable. And, and his ceiling was a lot higher than the rest of us and so we just we were happy to be there at the beginning and um, you know he's he's not like a, a wild and crazy guy so he's always kind of mellow but he did come out of his shell uh, and you know stopped wearing headphones 24 hours a day so we could actually speak with him uh, and he, he takes was a lot. A lot- yeah, it was a lot less shy after that. But, you know, we gave him a nickname and all that kind of stuff. He had, he had lots of nicknames, so I'm not going to share those. But, um, but yeah, he, he, that that was kind of how I'd, I'd name people on the team. I'd give everybody a nickname so I could remember uh, because, I don't know, that's just how I am. I give people nicknames. Is it
2: true that you were going to go to Arizona? Did you commit to Arizona at one point and then wind then up at Kansas? And, you know, I guess the follow-up to that would be, Was there a little extra sting there in
4: 97?
2: Yeah,
3: thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Told you, historian.
4: I I graduated high school in San Diego and I really wanted to stay in California. I wanted to stay close to home. Uh, Kansas, as far as I was concerned, was near Connecticut. I just didn't care about anything east of the Mississippi or even close to the Mississippi. Now I know Kansas is right in the middle, it's not east of the Mississippi, but it's all the same to me when I was growing up in San Diego. So, I wanted to go to UCLA. Uh, one of my brothers went to UCA, USC and I, I just wasn't right situation for me that time. I took a trip to UCLA and it just wasn't right. It, it didn't feel right for me. Coach Herrick was the coach at the time. And it just didn't seem like the right fit for me. Um, although I really wanted to play college basketball with Charles O'Bannon uh, because we had gotten to know each other at some of the camps and, and playoffs. Uh, in fact, his team and Avondre Jones knocked us out of the state tournament um, our senior year of high school. But, Um, Charles and I reunited as Piston rookies together. We got drafted to the Pistons together. So that was cool. Uh, Sorry about the side note, but um, so took my trip to Arizona. Well, I I took a trip to BYU. If you want a real side note, my mom, I I was born in Utah. and my, My whole family is Mormon. If you live in Utah right now, there's a 67% chance we're related. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm related to a lot of people in Utah. There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Well, your dad was a
2: Utah legend too, right?
4: Yeah, my dad's in the state of Utah Hall of Fame. And and so, and my mom, I think her family traces all the way back to Joseph Smith himself. So
3: there's a whole lot
4: of, of us in there. Um, but, uh, you know, they took me on a horseback ride. <laughs> and I was like, wrong dude. Wrong, you missed, yeah. you missed <laughs> Boo! Missed. So, Airball. Yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, there, there, there's the target. <laughs> you shot it over here. Um, so, uh, took the trip to Arizona. One of my, not my teammate, but a classmate that uh, had graduated my same high school at Torrey Pines was my host. Uh, and they took me to a party there. And uh, at the time, Lute Olson, great guy. I had been to his camp as a high schooler uh cookie made me breakfast Uh, they took me to a party there was a lot of tan girls with long black hair at that party and i don't know if you know what my wife looks like but they were trying their best to look like my wife so kind of my type and i really liked that party it was a good time so uh i committed verbally to loot i told him i'm gonna be an arizona wildcat and uh then you know roy won me over the next week i went to late night and that's a whole different story, but yeah, uh, UCLA won it in '95, and Arizona beat us to, to go on to win it in '97. So both of those schools, uh, you know, playing them and, and losing to them when when I could have been on the, either one of those teams, really, uh, it, it did sting when we lost to them. And and, uh, uh, you know, I, I threatened Mike Bibby within an inch of his life when we became teammates uh, because him and Miles Simon absolutely destroyed us in that game mm-hmm. in the Sweet Sixteen, and uh, you know, I, I'm joking when I say that. Like, we Mike's a great teammate. We were great friends uh, at the time. So, uh, but, you know, it, it, that's basketball. You know, if you play long enough, if you're gonna end up playing against people you hated. Hated playing against. It's just, it's not that big of a family once you get to the NBA. There's only 450 or so active players at any given time. And mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be one for over a decade. That's just, uh, again, for me, that was that was my goal.
3: Um, When you were in Sacramento, You had some tough matchups against Kevin Garnett, and there were a few rumors about a fight. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Are you going
3: to dive in on that? uh, Gozo,
4: Tokyo! (laughs) Um, (laughs) The Minnesota Timberwolves and the Sacramento Kings played, and I believe it was the first time that games in the NBA that were played outside of the USA were going to count against our record. And so we flew over to Tokyo to play them for two games. And we beat the piss out of them the first game. So we knew we were not going to win the second game. There was no way they were going to let one of us come back 0-2 or 2-0. So we just knew. We went out and had a good time in Tokyo. (laughs) And they got a little chippy in the first game because we were beating the piss out of them. Uh, But then we went out and had a good time. And I remember uh, I got back later than I should have. Uh, and I had an NBA TV appearance at the fish market to film the, you know, the famous fish market in Tokyo. And I was supposed to be at that at filming at four 45. I may or may not have walked into my hotel room at four o'clock. So, um, <laughs> I didn't sleep that night. Um, I was not feeling well later in the day and we played mm-hmm. that night and, uh, we got a little chippy and in, in the Tokyo dome, which by the way, that was the first time I had ever played on European guys. It's no big deal, but. That was the first time I'd ever played in a stadium where they allowed smoking. So it was cool uh, from that point of view because it wasn't overwhelming, but it was just like, ah, I'm smoking cigarettes, and I can smell it while I'm playing basketball. It, just, it was unusual. It wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't overpowering. It was just different. Um, but this tunnel was the same tunnel for both teams. So we kind of got into it in the game, and we're talking. And, you know, Kevin likes to get under people's skin, and he doesn't get under my skin because I just – I don't get that way. I, it doesn't bother me. Uh, But we had some words and then we get into the tunnel and he started yelling at me from behind me. He was a little bit ways behind me. Nothing came of it. No, no actual fists flew. That was mostly one of those NBA fights like hold me back. Hold me back. You know, a lot of talking, (laughs) a lot of jaw jacking, um, but no actual fists thrown. Uh, And, you know, when we became teammates later, as I just said, you know, at some point you're going to become teammates with somebody you hate if you play long enough. Right. And I hated him. I hated him. I hated Reggie Miller before we were teammates. Um, I hated Grant Hill until we were teammates. Um, you know, and, and the reason why is because they're competitors. And those dudes, are, yeah. they just love to play. They want to win. And I love being teammates with Kevin Garnett. I don't have his phone number. We're not great friends, but I love being teammates with him because he was the right man at the right time to help us win that championship. He's, he was a great teammate in exactly what the Celtics needed uh, in that role and his role for that team to win it.
3: I love
0: that. I like the "hold me back, hold me back" part.
3: I know. Oh, there's
4: a lot of that in the NBA. That's most of the NBA fights. Yeah, it's like I, you, they they shove each other and then they they start looking around. Like, hold oh, me back. No, no somebody hold oh, me back. back. You're, he's
0: you're like, he's that's the uh, that's the elementary school fights, right? When you want to be the tough kid at elementary school. What Go I got
3: out of that is he got beat up by Tokyo and the fish market before <laughs> Kevin even took a swing.
0: Yeah, he's like, dude, there's nothing you can do to me. Japan yeah, hasn't been already done it. Japan wins. <laughs> I had so, a
4: 102 uh, fever during that game. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. So hey, that was,
0: was that the worst my... hangover of your career? <laughs>
4: oh, it wasn't a hangover. I was just sick. Uh. <laughs> you don't so, get a 102 fever from alcohol. No. <laughs> Depends that's... how much alcohol. No, nah, no, <laughs> that it certainly wasn't alcohol. I was must was have not been the stuff Tokyo. to
3: kill it. Yeah,
4: yeah, it, yeah. I probably would have felt better if I drank more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there was one time where you um you replaced Tommy on a call with a game, so you called the game with Mike Gorman how did that come about? And like, you must be one of the only guys that were, that's been an active player that hasn't gone into media completely. You know, you're not obviously Scal is the first guy you think of that's done it full time, but how did it come about where you got the opportunity to do that? And what was the experience like being next to Mike?
4: Yeah. Um, so we, I, I had done that in Sacramento. Um, there, when I had a broken spine, um, I, uh, was out for an extended period of time and they let me do some of the games with, in their box. And so I'd had some history with it. And, I, and then when I was out for the season for the Celtics, they were like, Hey, do you want to jump in the box? I was like, absolutely. It'd be great. And uh, so they let me do that. And I think Tommy actually had a family issue anyway. Um, so he had to be gone. It wasn't like we shared a three-man box. It was just Tommy had to be somewhere. And instead of hiring outside talent, I think they were just like, Hey, Scott, if you want to be the guy, be the guy. If I remember correctly, that's what it was. And I was like, yeah, great. I'll fill in. And it was a blast. I, I, I've always loved doing it. Uh, I, I did a, a stint for NBA TV right after I retired. Uh, and I've worked for the Pacers uh, several years ago. Like I think I stopped in 2015 um, doing pre- and post-game shows uh, for, for the Pacers TV. Um, I, I don't want to be on the road, really, is why I don't do it um, full-time. Uh, it's, I, I did that lifestyle, and, and I love my kids, and I love my wife, and I love being home. Um, you know, and I'm not making millions of dollars as a broadcaster. That's just a fact. I'm not Charles Barkley or Shaq. So, you know, not that it wouldn't be worth my time or, or if it was, if I was getting paid, you know, six figures, uh, but, you know, radio isn't paying that much these days. And, and, uh, the, the broadcaster more and more, they're getting, uh, you know, even the last two years, for sure. You guys know they've been doing them from home. So. Uh, they weren't even traveling and, and that would have been ideal but then the paycheck doesn't go as well either because you're not getting that per diem and extra benefits. So um, I, it's, it's been consolidated to the point that I just don't know that I would make that sacrifice to be on the road to try to go grind it out and make 150 or something like that. Uh, and again, that is incredible money. That's a great job uh, but as realtors, my wife and I are doing about that right now So, and I don't have to leave to go do it. I get to work with my wife
0: so last time i spoke to you it was probably about 18 months ago if you remember or not um but i remember you m- mentioning there was an opportunity that arose to join the wwe or there was a conversation that happened. <laughs> and we're talking about you like being on the mic and obviously you've just explained the entire reason why you wouldn't want to go back on the road but wwe money is a lot more than what uh broadcast money is so how did like for the listeners how did that discussion come about and did you ever think of your wrestling stage name because i I, I, have
3: a lot of thought into what mine would be yeah he's the nickname guy too apparently
4: (laughs) actually my friends nicknamed me uh because i told them immediately about the meeting i had with vince mcmahon and triple h um and they were like well you're the honest assassin (laughs) you just grow the beard around here (laughs) Wear the flat hat and that's it. You're the Amish assassin. Amish assassin. I can't even say it. So, um, no, I was actually after my rookie year, I got uh, my agent called and said, hey, there's a movie being filmed in Toronto. And so they flew me up to Toronto uh, to be in this movie and it never got released. It was called the New Jersey Turnpikes. But if you've ever heard of the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell, Mm -hmm. the New Jersey Turnpikes was the first iteration of that movie. It's just that it wasn't funny. And so they canned it and they got Will Ferrell and they made it really funny. Uh, but it, we filmed that whole movie from start to finish. The exact script and everything, just different characters. We, we I, I was in the New Jersey Turnpikes and it was Semi-Pro 1. And it was just, I, don't, I never saw the movie, but a couple of people that were in the movie saw it and they were like, it's terrible. <laughs> so I guess I single-handedly just ruined the production. It's my fault. Um, but um, so one night after filming, Uh, I was out to dinner with, uh, ironically, George Wendt, uh, Norm from Cheers, Norm, uh, yeah, who was, yep, he was in town filming something, and and some other guys, and I got to meet him because of other people in the movie, and we're out to dinner, and all of a sudden, they were like, "Hey, you're Scott Pollard," and I was like, "Yeah," they're like, "These two guys want to talk to you," so I went over and had dinner with Vince McMahon and Triple H, and I had no idea. I really, I was 24 years old. WWE was something I never watched as a kid. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't really know who they were other than, I think you're the president of the wrestling thing. um, And you're one of the wrestlers. And so they were just absolutely trying to see if my personality matched my look. Uh, And unfortunately, I was very normal and boring. uh, And I think that's why they didn't really pursue it anymore. But really, the the bottom line was, I think they asked me multiple times, like, how much you love the NBA? Because you didn't seem to play a lot your rookie year. I was like, no, I think I'm going to stick it out. Like, I didn't want to quit the NBA and try to do that. Um, Now, after I was done playing in the NBA in 2008, I probably should have looked into it a little bit. Some of my friends were like, yeah, man, you should do that. But, you know, then there's that whole gaining a whole ton of weight. So I look like a pro wrestler because I was Mm -hmm. still pretty slender at 275. Um, And so I did that actually on my own. I gained weight. I got up to 320 and I was pretty jacked. Um, and then my heart doctor was like, no, lose no. the weight.
3: Yeah, it's <laughs> not for you.
4: Your your body, your heart can't tell if it's muscle or fat. It's just 320 pounds. It's too much. So I dropped the weight and uh, that was kind of the end of that idea of, of maybe jumping in there. And now I'm just too old and broke and everything hurts. So no,
2: am not doing it. <laughs> okay, let, me, let, me, let me go back to 2008 there, that, that, that experience where you got the finals. No um what, what was it like to be there and I you know I guess you you mentioned Pierce and and sort of what it was like uh 15 years earlier through 11 years earlier what was he like but like how had he changed at that point and especially when it came to Kobe Bryant because I remember he just like he wanted Kobe Bryant in that in that series what did, what did you kind of see from him in that series
4: well, you know, there's no comparison from when he was 17, 18 years old when we were teammates because it was just his freshman and sophomore year we were teammates uh, to, you know, him being a man-man uh, in the NBA Finals. And, and he was. It, it, there was nobody else that was more responsible for us winning that championship than Paul Pierce. Uh, he, he didn't drag us there. He had help. But in the Finals, he absolutely was the man. And, you know, Ray played his role. Kevin played his role. Everybody else played their role. Uh, but, but without Paul being a man, man, and, and just going nuts, uh, and, and just saying, you know what, I'm going to win this. We are going to win this and I'm going to win this. Uh, he was just incredible. And, and my memory of it is just that he was, he was great. He was, a, he was a great player. He, he didn't back down. You know, there's been uh, arguments of people in earlier in his career or later in his career that he couldn't get it done. He couldn't be the winner. He couldn't drag a team. Um, and he needed help. Well, yeah, he got help. Um, uh, in the form of, of Ray and, and KG, but uh, he still won it, and, and he was the reason. You know, people say, oh, why do you wear that ring? I'm like, Paul Pierce won it for me. That's always <laughs> been my response.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> yeah, and I remember that in that during that series, and this had to be weird for you,
2: uh, I was covering that series, and I remember because this was when the Donaghy stuff came out, and so, of course, everybody wanted to ask you about 2002 and what had happened uh, in that uh, was a game six against the Lakers. Uh, you know, how, how, you know, did you have to like think a lot about what the answer should be, you know, and, and, and kind of craft it. You mean know, David Stern is there and, and, and you've got all this, like, what was that, you know, what was kind of going through your head as, as like all this and, and now all of a sudden people want to ask you about something from six years earlier?
4: Well, at the time, yeah, you're a company player, you know, you don't want to insult your employer. Uh, and and call it fraudulent. So I did watch what I had to say uh, about those events. And, um, you know, my my response, I think, has been pretty consistent over the years that, first of all, Donahue didn't ref that game. He wasn't one of the referees of of game six. And a lot of people think he was just because his name has been associated with it because he said that game was fixed. Well, we don't know that for sure. Uh, And he certainly wasn't one of the referees. Uh, So I've been consistent about that and making sure people understand that fact. But the other part of it is, you know, yeah, we lost game six for whatever reason. You can say it was fixed. You can say whatever you want, and I won't argue with you. You can say the referees were in on it, and they were told to make sure that it went seven games. I won't argue with you. I don't care. What I do know is we had game seven because we were the best team in the NBA that year. We had home court throughout the playoffs, and we had game seven at home, and we shit the bed. And that's the problem with with that whole series. I, I don't mind that we lost game six. For whatever reason, even if it was the filthiest game ever, and it might be, uh, but we had a chance to go home and win in front of our home crowd, which at the time was the best crowd in the NBA, and we didn't. And so that's the part that really bothers me is is we went home and, and the and the champions did what champions do. Kobe and Shaq played like men, men, <laughs> and and they took it to us, and, and we didn't. We didn't recover from Game Six, and that's not mm-hmm. what champions do. Champions have a short memory. You make mistakes, and you got to be ready for the next play. We, we messed up a game. Uh, and even if it was unfair, even if it was fixed, whatever, we didn't recover from game six to game seven and bring our A game. And that's what champions do. Champions are ready, in, especially game seven at home. So that's, that's my whole take on that. I, I don't care about if there was something going on in game six. Um, You know, (laughs) actually, I think two of the three referees and I are friends on Facebook now. Uh, (laughs) If I'm if I'm correct, I think one of them was Bob Delaney and one was. uh, uh, I'm staring at his face right now. Teddy Bernhardt. Uh, I believe those were two of the three refs and Dick Bovetta. Yeah. Bob sent me his book. I've read his book. It's called Covert and he signed it for me. He spelled my name with two T's like, thanks, jackass. Yeah. But it's a really good book. I'm, I'm not knocking Bob. Uh, and Teddy, is he's in, living in Puerto Rico, but he's from Indiana apparently. So he, he messages me every once in a while. And, and so, like I said, I if you want to go down that road, I can talk about ways that the NBA could have fixed that game. But again, ultimately, it doesn't matter what happened. We had game seven at home and we didn't deliver.
3: I want to kind of talk about I want to do a little bit of a compare and contrast from your time in the NBA to where we're at now because we have LeBron James, who is just an incredible athlete. You got to witness it firsthand. I want to know, do you feel like he is as good as he was in 2007? Do you think he's better? Obviously, we've seen a progression in his mentals, but do you feel like that is the reason why he's been able to carry on and perform at the level he has been?
4: Um, I think it starts with the physical, first of all. I, I don't know how he's even running anymore, with the amount of put, punishment he has put into that body and, and the size he is. I mean, the guy's a freaking dinosaur, and I'm talking about age and size. <laughs> it, it, the, the fact that he's 265 and he's just pounding those knees for this many years, it's incredible that he's even healthy, let alone still dunking on people. So when, when you're gifted with that type of longevity from a physical standpoint, and you put that much effort into it. I'm not knocking him because he's clearly put a lot of effort into keeping his body on top physical form.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, but when you're gifted with that ability to stay healthy for that long, that's incredible by itself. You can set records in the NBA just by playing 20 years in the NBA. Um, that's incredible. And, and I'm not saying it's a given if you play that long, but it certainly is number one. You, you got to be healthy to be out there on the court to be able to do those things. And he's been healthier than most for however long it's been. Uh, to your point about whether he's better now than in 2007, we all get better as we get older because he's physically able. He's got more knowledge. I would say he's a better passer uh, than he was then. Back then, he just kind of threw the ball where he wanted you to be. And if you weren't there, it was it was a turnover. And so he'd yell at you. Uh, but, I, you know, my, my comeback was like, you know, the great passers hit the player. They don't throw it where they think you're going to go. Uh, you, hit, you hit me in the hands and I'm going to catch it. You hit me anywhere in this, in this region, and it's a big region. Uh, I'm going to catch it, but don't throw it where you think I'm going because I may not go there. I might see something else, you know, squirrel or something. So, um, you know, I think he's a better passer, and I think that um, also, you know, he's, he's got talent around him <laughs> lately mm-hmm. uh, in the last five or six years, uh, more than we had in 2007. So, uh, again, with Paul and, and the other two, In in Boston and, you know, the the other teams, the other super teams, Warriors, you know, I don't need to go on the list. You guys know. Uh, But when you're talking about, you know, him in 2007 taking us, you know, to the finals and uh, not another Hall of Fame player on that roster. uh, That's a little bit crazy. Uh, You know, we're all good. We're all in the NBA, uh, but that's that's pretty impressive. And we had a really good record. that year. I think we were second in the East. And so you know when you when you fast forward ten years and he's playing with three Hall of famers or or at least two uh, for the last five or six years on every team he's been on, it's like,, eh, you know the, the pressure's not as high because he's got a lot of help. Um, and then the pressure then becomes managing egos uh, as opposed to uh, you know who's who's gonna be the man because it's that's the problem is when you've got three guys or four guys that think they're the man, that can tear up a team and it causes trades. Look at New Jersey right now. You know, there's there's people yeah. that think they're the man and and they don't realize that there's five to eight NBA players at any given time that are generational talents. LeBron's one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna name all the rest of them that are in the NBA right now because I don't know them all, but you know, he's one of them. And if you're not him and you're on his team, you're not the man. LeBron's the man, and you've got to figure out your role to support the man. And I think that's what worked well in 2007 in Cleveland. We all were, knew we were role players compared to him. Uh, and I think when, when he doesn't win at all on the teams he's been on lately, it's because they haven't managed the egos very well and the other players are still trying to be the man when they have to defer. You have to defer to the man and then you'll be better because everybody has their role and they know their role.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to do another comparison from the career to now. But it's not going to be about LeBron because LeBron gets enough publicity as it is, Um, (laughs) if we're being honest. So Celtics podcast, Robert Williams, when you was playing, did you ever come up against a big man that was comparative to him? Skill set wise, explosiveness, length. And if so, how did you deal with that guy defending him or trying to score on him? And how would you translate that now if Rob Williams was trying to defend you?
4: Well, that's a tough question for me to answer because I don't know who Robert Williams is. <laughs> you just
3: broke NBA. Adam's heart.
0: I, I'm literally like, my heart sank. Like,
4: really? I, I don't watch the NBA. I don't know who that is. Okay, but, so the
0: dude, the dude can jump. Like, he could touch probably. Like, this is exaggerating slightly. He can probably touch the rafters when he jumps. Like, he's <laughs> like, uh, he's unquestionably the most athletic big man in the league right now. So that's it, basically. A a super athletic shot blocker that can pass, like, like probably one of the top six best passing bigs. Okay.
4: Well, um, I played against Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, Charles Barkley, Yao Ming. Uh, I played against, uh, well, Vlade, with Vlade. Um, I played against Shaq in his prime. I played against uh, um Sean Bradley, I played against George Mirosan. Uh I played against about every – oh, David Robinson, Tim Duncan. Uh, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, Carl Malone. Uh, so I think I played against some of the best ever to play in those positions, the four and the five. And so I, and I think I held my own uh, for the most part. Now, I'm not saying I didn't get dunked on because everybody does if you try to block shots. And that's the funny thing about people. are like, oh, man, you got dunked on a lot. I'm like, well, I also blocked a lot of shots. Kind of goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot get dunked on by never trying to block anybody's shot. That's how it works. Um, but um, and I'm I know I left out some some top fifty players, uh, guys that I played against. I just you know I can't rattle them all off. But um, so I, w- I would say that you know if I was to go up against a guy like that, I played against Dwight Howard when he was young and bouncy, and That's he was an incredible athlete. Uh, I wouldn't say he was the best passer, but he was an incredible athlete in those days. He was in the slam dunk contest and all that. And, you know, you manage those guys because they're light. Guys that can fly like that, they don't weigh 270 pounds. I did. And, and so you can manage them by, by keeping a body on him. And, and, and for Dwight, I can put my hand across his whole lower back because he was that narrow. And so that's what I did. And he got mad. And he started complaining to the ref. He's old to me. He's old to me. I was like, no, I got one hand on him. That's it. It's just that hand is on your whole back and you can't move because you only weigh <laughs> 220 pounds. <laughs> oh. And so that – there, there are ways of managing people that are more athletic than you, and most of the people that I played against were better than me. And, and so you learn those techniques of, of what bothers them. And, and some of them don't like contact. Some of them don't like being talked to. Some of them don't like, uh, you know, uh, a bump, or they, they don't like you pulling the stool out. You know, whatever it is, some of them like the contact because they like to know where you are. And then you, you fade away from them, and they travel. You know, so you just you figure out those little niches, little things, that, the tricks that work. Uh, and so, yeah, for Robert Williams, I'd probably play him like I did against White, uh, put my hands on him and make sure I know where he is all the time. So he's not getting away from me uh, because David Robinson was the same way. He was really narrow uh, and, and he was so quick and, and he was a great passer. And, and that baseline jump shot was just unstoppable. And so I had to make sure I had my hands on David. Uh, but then, you know, his back got bad and it slowed him down and he didn't play as much. you know I caught him at the end of his career. But, um, yeah, Robert Williams would be my Dwight Howard. And uh, I would just hold on to
0: them. I will say you are missing. If you're ever on a lunch break, like, you know, you're waiting to show a house or somebody's late to come and see the house and everything's laid out, just get the phone out, go onto YouTube, Robert Williams highlights. You're going to have the best time. You're not going to want to, you're going to want to sell the house to Robert Williams so you can become friends. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you're a big fan of his. All right. Very big. I'm, I'm in. All right. I, I just
2: have one more thing for you, Scott, and that is, uh, you know, some of the stuff obviously we've seen with Kevin Durant this summer. He's kind of dominated the summer now. Uh, they got together, they met, and apparently everybody's happy. Um, with what you know about how an NBA team works and the inner workings of an NBA team, can everything just be fine for a team like that after going through, you know, what they just went through?
4: Uh, I don't think Steve Nash makes it much longer. Um, honestly, it's always the coach. They're not going to fire the, the $150 million player. They're going to fire the, the whatever Steve's getting paid, $10 million a year, $5 million a year. That's peanuts compared to what KD's making, and they're, they're not going to see Steve Nass coach. So um, that's how those things work when a, when, when a team bails on the coach. Uh, and if your star player is bailed on the coach, then it's easy for the rest of the team to go, well, I'm not playing as much as I want to either. That, it's probably the coach. It's not me you know, I'm showing up 10 minutes late and leaving 15 minutes early. Why would it be me? It's not me. It's gotta be the coach. So, um, you know, that, that is problematic. Locker rooms are very easy to destroy. And that's why it, it's really hard to win when your top player is playing games is, is acting out in certain ways. And I don't know, I heard that he said he wanted to fire the GM and the coach. And it's like, you just got 190 million or whatever. Just shh. sorry. Shut up and dribble, man. I'd be happy. Nope. When I got my six year deal, I was like, I will shut up and dribble for all, for all six years. You just tell me where to be. I will be there. You tell me where we're going. I will be there early. I will do everything you ask me to do. Cause you're making me a wealthy person. Well, rich, not wealthy. Um, <laughs> Chris rock. <laughs> but, um, No, and and again, I don't know, so I'm not knocking KD. I mean, one of my oldest friends and best friends is an assistant coach there, and I haven't talked to him at all. Jock Vaughn and I were college roommates, Uh, and so I've I've known Jock for most of our lives. We're a day apart. He's a day older than me. We're we're pretty close, but I don't call him and talk to him about stuff like that because I'm not going to sit there and try to get gossip from him. That's just not how we are. Uh, We talk and catch up about our families and stuff. I'm not going to sit there and call him and ask him about work uh, other than how's it going are you going to be there this year? so i don't know what's going on that locker room but what i do know as you asked you know franchises programs all of that the front office can be unstable and ruin the talent that they put together the owner can be overbearing and try to manage and ruin the talent or try to bring in talent they think is better and they don't let the basketball people do the basketball stuff uh in the form of hiring a nerd gm as opposed to a basketball gm and you all know what i'm talking about um you know there's a place for numbers. There's a place for basketball knowledge, and, and it's a delicate mixture. And when you're trying to bake a cake with, you know, three hundred million dollars, it's difficult. And there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of the little fractions of, of ingredients that got to be right. And it's hard when your big one, your your hundred fifty million dollar or hundred ninety million dollar ingredient, isn't on board with what's going on. Uh, so it it could be terrible. Uh, but my guess is if it doesn't, if it if it's fine, it's fine. You know, if they kiss and make up, it's possible. Uh, But my guess is they lose a few games. Steve Nash gets fired and maybe Jock Vaughn gets promoted to head coach. Who knows? There you go.
3: (laughs) I'm going to make you put your dad cap on for just a second. You You mentioned earlier that you wanted like your goal was to get to the NBA, play for 10 years, and that's what your focus was on. Not many people can say that they made that goal when they were younger and then achieved their dream. Um, I want to know, do you have any advice for any of the younger generation that's out there? Any words of wisdom that you can give as a dad or as somebody who's accomplished one of the biggest dreams that they set out for?
4: Uh, you know, it, you have to take it with a grain of salt because I did get to live out my childhood dream. And the, the reason I did that was uh, much like my last analogy. There's a lot of, of, of moving parts. Uh, I'm the son of a legend. Uh, so I got talent. Uh, my whole family is giants. I have three brothers bigger than me. I'm the youngest of six kids, and they beat the crap out of me when I was growing up. I was the small. I'm still the, there's three of my brothers that are still taller than me. And so they used to beat the crap out of me when I was a kid. Um, so I learned a lot of things as a child that not everybody gets to just because of my birth, birth Um, You know, my older my older siblings grew up more well off. And then my dad lost everything when I was a little kid. Uh, And so I grew up very different than my siblings and and very like on government substance and and checks and, you know, checks from the government and and welfare and that kind of stuff. So uh, that that created a different upbringing for me. And then my dad died when I was 16. So those are all things that I feel like were impetus to to making me tough and making me understand that life wasn't just that I got a gift. It was, are you going to use this gift? Are you going to take this blessing? And use it to the best of your potential. And so that's what I when I give speeches, you know, I give them to corporations. I say similar things that I say to corporations that I say to schools, uh, where it is is, you know, everyone has opportunities every single day. You can be late to work. You can you can call it in and just do your bare minimum work, and you still get paid. Or you can show up early. You can interact with your boss and say, "How am I doing?" and be humble and work your butt off. You can go to your teachers if you're in school, and you can go in and say, "Hey, I don't have an A in this class." is there any way I can get one? Can I do some extra credit? And I tell my kids this all the time. My two older ones are great, great students. Uh, but my, my freshman, or sophomore now in high school, he's getting better, but he's not the greatest <laughs> student. He's a foosball player, football. I call it the foosball from water, but, but he's a football player. And, and and he just, he cares more about running around and hitting people than, than, you know, hitting the books. But, you know, um, It is about your discipline. It is about setting yourself apart from everybody else that is just as talented or shows up to the same job you have, shows up to the same school you have. What are you setting yourself apart with? Are you setting yourself apart with just being a jackass and doing the bare minimum, and and then nobody notices you're there? Cool. If that makes it so you don't have any anxiety and you just kind of fit in, that's fine. But if you want to improve your station in life, you got to do something that makes you better than the other people that are trying to do the thing you're doing. And so, again, because of my birth order, I watched my brothers do things. I watched them make decisions. They're all Mormon. All four of them went on missions for the church, and all of them came back overweight and got hurt. And they, while they were gone, their coaches changed because they got fired. You know. And so there were things that, like even choosing my college was because of my brother's experience in college. And I had that. Now I could have ignored all that and said, they're them. I'm me. I'm going to do my thing. But I watched them, and I learned those things. I took them in. I was like, I'm not going to a college where the coach might get fired or leave while I'm there. I made mean, Roy Williams promise me he wasn't leaving during my four years. I made him. I was like, Roy, I will believe you if you tell me, but I'm not coming here unless you promise that you're not leaving for North Carolina until at least I'm done. And he promised me, and he stayed. And, uh, and funny story, it got it got around. All the recruits after me that were big-time recruits heard about that, and they all made him promise. And the last two players he promised were Nick Paulson and Kirk Heiner. And then That's amazing. After their careers. Nobody, he didn't promise anybody else after them.
3: So he's probably kicking you for that now a little bit.
4: <laughs> I, I think he wanted to leave earlier because uh, there, there was an opening earlier. And I think he was ready to leave, but he had promised his players. Uh, and then he promised Nick and, and Kurt. And so, yeah. But I love that. You know, the, 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 the pressure is, uh, are you going to put pressure on yourself to be different? You can do what everybody else can do, and you'll get by. We can all find a job. We can all go do this or do that, and find something that's going to occupy your time. You're going to make some money, and you can have a job. You might be fine with that, and that's cool. Again, a lot of kids nowadays deal with anxiety more than ever before, and and, and I say, you know, anxiety is a good thing. Anxiety is supposed to be part of our personality. Why? Because it kept us alive when there were saber-toothed tigers hunting, yeah. hunting us. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to have anxiety, and so that's what I try to tell kids like, Hey, when you feel that, like, Oh, that means you're supposed to be doing something. That means go out and, and start running. If you want to be a better runner, if you want to get better shape, go lift some weights, you know, that anxiety is telling you you're not doing enough. Cause if you're sitting around just being anxious and you think a pill is going to fix it, you're wrong. You got to go do something with that anxiety. You got to go work it out. You got to go study it out. You got to go read it out. You got to go improve yourself. And that's true for adults, but it's more true with kids now because kids are just, yeah, those kids, uh, mine, mine too. Uh, they all are. It's, there's a big anxiety epidemic out there, and I, and I just hope we can get through it. Uh, and it's up to our generation uh, to, to parent these kids and, and teach them to, to deal with the anxiety, manage it, and don't try, to, don't, don't try to drug it. Don't try to put a pill in it because the pills ain't going to fix it.
3: I appreciate that so much. You have given us so many good stories, and like the last little bit kind of touched me. So I really appreciate that. But thank you for taking your time and hanging out with us. I hope we all get nicknames by the end of this podcast, but <laughs> I really appreciate that you came on and you're awesome. Thank you so much.
4: Well, there's Limey and Foggy and the girl.
3: <laughs> and the girl. Limey <laughs> Foggy and the girl. All right.
4: <laughs> you you got to clean your camera a little bit, dude. It's a little foggy. Maybe wipe that thing down a bit. You look like you're in a, like, it's a little foggy up there. You might want to clean the camera off.
0: Which one's that? I mean? don't
4: you're still
3: so beautiful, Sean.
4: No, That's not the Limey. Oh,
3: no. not Limey. Oh.
0: No. <laughs> Who's limey? Me? Yeah. You're okay, lying. I'm cool with that. I'm cool. As long as the camera's not foggy, I'm chill.
3: Sure. <laughs> I'm just glad that Adam can't use my nickname against me now. What's limey, me I'm going with.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right. Well, thank
3: you so much, Scott, with 1T. We yes.
4: appreciate you. Thank you, gang. Hey, really, thanks for bringing me down memory lane. I love talking about the old days. I don't think about it much because, again, I'm just a realtor now. I don't talk and watch basketball much anymore. So thanks for walking me down memory lane. I appreciate it
0: remember robert williams
4: i will i'm gonna google robert williams right now <laughs> i might get stuck on jason williams but you know i might look yeah, i now. mean that's
0: completely understandable
4: yeah white chocolate not the murder yeah. and
0: <laughs> one the and one documentary dropped on that- yesterday. yeah
4: yeah Hot- i haven't Hire, seen yeah. that yet but I, I will man. check it out yeah
1: All right, everyone. Thank you again for listening to the Celtics Collective podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed the interview that Maddie, Sean, and Adam did with Scott Pollard. Um, He told some really good stories. Um, I hope you enjoyed those. Let us know any other guests or Celtics adjacent players, um, other people, analysts, writers um, that we could have on the podcast, and we'll be sure to have them as interviews as well. Is that something we want to do a bit more of? But As always, um, follow, subscribe, rate, review um, anywhere you get your podcast, anywhere you're listening to us, make sure to follow. And also keep an eye on what we do at Heavy Sports and check out Heavy on Celtics and um, the great articles that our writers are putting out there every day. And so thank you again for listening.